Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This is Issues 2019. I'm Steve McIntosh, and our guest is Coke Industries Senior Vice President Mark Holden. Welcome to Issues 2019. Nice to have you with us. Thanks, Steve. Great to be here. Our topic is reforming the criminal justice system. That is a big topic. We're going to try to hone in on some specifics here. I'd like to get a little bit of background on, uh, from you, Mr. Holden, if I could. Tell us a little about where you're from and, and how you became involved with Coke Industries. Yeah, so I, I'm originally from Worcester, Massachusetts, Central Mass, a wonderful small city, working class town. And I grew up there, went to high school, public high school, public schools my whole life till I went to law school, went to UMass Amherst. And, um, you know, my, my father's deceased. My mom still lives in Worcester, and one of my sisters lives in Boston. So I'm still, uh, you know, I still think of myself as someone from Worcester, Massachusetts. After law school, uh, I got a, got a uh, job with a law firm in Washington, D.C. That's where I met my wife. And uh, we had two children in D.C. And then in 1995, I got an opportunity to work for Coke Industries, and we moved to Wichita, Kansas. And I've been with Coke ever since, going on 24 years. What was that like? Did you think you were going to have a culture shock when you came back here? Yeah, no, it was a culture shock. I mean, <laughs> but every every place is different, and you know, going, you know, a lot of, uh, and I love Wichita, and I love coming back now, even though I'm in D.C. again. And it was a great place for us to raise our kids and really nice family atmosphere. The company's phenomenal. You know, it's just been so lucky. But at the beginning, it was different. You know, we were coming from Washington, D.C., and this was in the the mid-'90s when it was really dangerous there. But there there was a lot of – it it was an adjustment, but it was an easy adjustment mostly for us. The pace kind of slows down. Yeah, the the pace (laughs) slows. And for me, I was lucky to work at a place like Coke and – uh, with all you know, the great people that are there and learned so much about so many different things working with Charles Koch, Dave Robertson, and all our other leaders. And so I've, I've just been extremely lucky my whole life. I like to say, though, the thing with Koch, we kind of just did it, you know, let's try something different, get out of D.C. and see how that is. And I, I like to say I got hit by the luck truck. I had no idea what I was getting into, and it's been one of the best decisions I ever made, definitely from a business or, or career uh Perspective. You know, I, I don't want you to give away any trade secrets, but what's the secret to Coke's management style? What's it like? I well, really, what it is is you got Charles Coke, who's um, you know with market-based management for many, many years. Yeah. You know, going on 50, 60 years, he's been perfecting this. It's basically um, it, it, it's a situation where everybody just we do things based on comparative advantage and division of labor. Uh, we have our guiding principles and. You know, it's really a team effort all the way around, and we try to just basically make it so individuals are set up for success. And it's it's a team approach, regardless of whatever entity business you're in, whether it's legal, whether it's one of our, our for-profit businesses or counting or whatever it is. It's a team approach, and it's all about basically, you know, Charles is very much focused on transforming society, but also transforming our employees and helping them self-actualize and find out what they're really good at, what their innate uh, skills mm. and, and, and passions are, and developing them and hopefully 
that you know meshes with what our businesses are trying to do. So it's a, it's a place for me. I mean, I started out doing labor and employment litigation. Then you know just because I I guess I'd say I didn't screw up too bad and got some things right and was able to work well with people. I was you know promoted up to general counsel. Now I'm a senior vice president working in Washington, D.C. on policy issues. So I've had such an amazing career that I don't think I ever could have imagined having if I just stayed in a law firm. I've been so blessed. The company has just grown terrifically over the past few years. What, 60,000 people or more, I guess? Huh? Well, that we've got about 100 and I think it's 120 oh, to 140,000 or so. We've got uh, every every state we have people in the United States, and we've got in 60 countries around the world. Wow. And so we're a global employer, and it's... Um, Really, at the end of the day, uh, it, it's just been remarkable just to be a part of it. It's it's a really, really tough place to work, but it's a great place to work. I mean, if you if, if you can handle it, I mean, it it's nonstop. Yeah. It's it's for me. I couldn't have asked for anything more. I've been so lucky. Now, we've been hearing for a couple of years about uh, Charles Koch's interest in criminal justice reform. Why did he decide to get involved in this? You think? Well, Charles has been interested in criminal justice reform. For decades, I mean, going, we're going back to the start of the war on drugs. You know, Charles was not in favor of these. You know, of, of basically a one-size-fits-all approach to criminal justice reform issues. He was a, um, you know, so he was very much against mandatory minimums and the war on drugs and the way we just kind of treated everybody on mass. And for Charles, at the end of the day, uh, and 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 at our company, it's all about as I mentioned earlier, transforming lives. And what we're trying to do is remove barriers to opportunity. And if you look at our criminal justice system, the way it's been set up since the beginning of the war on drugs in the 70s, it's, it's one of the major impediments to opportunity for people, particularly the least advantaged. And it ends up becoming a poverty trap. And now we've got generational poverty and generational uh, families in prison. Their families in prison altogether and then just family members in prison. And what it's done is really just uh, created a two-tiered system. We've got a system where the rich and the connected get much better outcomes than everybody else, particularly the least advantaged. It's a pay-to-play system. If you have resources, you're probably going to be okay. If you don't, you're going to get run over. And if you're the least among us in poverty, basically prison becomes almost a lifestyle for many people in these communities. And between the war on drugs and the war on and, and, and the um, war on poverty, I'd, I'd say that the government and our approach has really hurt people, people who, you know, really need help instead of being, you know, between poverty and then being sent to prison for sometimes, obviously, some real issues, mm -hmm. you know, violent crimes. Sure. But then with the war on drugs, we didn't really differentiate between people who are addicts, people who are low-level offenders, and, and people who just needed a second chance and didn't get it. That's changing now. But so for us, it's removing barriers to opportunity so we can have a system that's consistent, you know, from a moral perspective, a constitutional perspective, and then a fiscal perspective. Because the amount of money we spend on our criminal justice system every year, it's, it's really staggering. If you look at it, it's about uh, over $250 billion a year. Social costs are estimated at over a trillion dollars a year. We spend over $80 billion a year on incarceration, which is three to four times more per capita than we spend on K-12 through education in this country every year. And it's just really, at the end of the day, it hasn't made us safer. How does that, how does that, and I, I studied, started looking into the, 
libertarianism or uh, that philosophy back in, in the 70s. How does all that gel with the libertarian philosophy? Because well, Koch is, is very closely related with that. Well, yeah, actually, Charles is a classical liberal. Yeah, and, okay. and because and, and libertarian has become to mean so many different things. Yeah. And but from a classical liberal perspective, Charles is just really focused on trying to see human flourishment. And 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 again, as I mentioned earlier, seeing everybody, we believe everybody has innate abilities and skills. And if you can remove the barriers to opportunity that keep external barriers to opportunity that keep people from succeeding, whether it's a criminal justice system, that really just. Um, gets people locked up and never gives them a second chance. You know, regardless of the sentence, once you get out, you sometimes have a life sentence because you can't get a job, you can't get housing, you can't get loans, you can't get licenses. And then from you know K through 12 educations programs that don't serve the needs of the children and the pu- and, and, and the students, um, that type of thing. So we want to remove those external barriers to opportunity, and then. We believe that most everybody in our society can succeed if they're given an opportunity, regardless of where they started. If you can get an education, if you can get a job and get a second chance. So that's what we're really focused on is that. And that, you know, we look at different key institutions of society, um, communities, education, business, and government. We focus on those and we try to work across those different um, um, key institutions to make them better to help people get a second chance, for example, in the criminal justice system. So when you make a mistake and you go to prison, we should welcome you back in. You paid your debt to society, but like I said earlier, you don't always get a second chance. Um, It ends up almost a life sentence because you can't get a job, you can't get housing and that type of thing, and then oftentimes people recidivate uh, because they can't find a way to make an honest living. And so we're trying to break down those barriers. And our goal in, pr- in the criminal justice system is we want a system that keeps everybody safe, public safety. And that's everybody, you know, from the people in the communities to law enforcement. We also want a system based on equal rights and equal justice. And we want a system that's proportional. We want a system that's redemptive. And so our whole goal is that second chances uh, are such a key that people who make mistakes Let's, let's, you know, they pay their debt to society. Let's give them a chance. And one of the big things at Coke that we can do as a global employer is that we have a lot of jobs. And there are about, estimated throughout the United States, about 7 million open jobs right now uh, with the booming economy. And what we're, our, so our approach is people who are in prison, let's get them skilled up, you know, whether educated and then, or, or learning skills like welding and electrician, et cetera, becoming an electrician. So when they get out, they can get a job, get a second chance, and then be a productive member of society, and they don't go back to prison. They don't recidivate. And that's what's worked over the past 10 to 15 years at the state level. 30-plus states have passed reforms that have made their systems safer. They've reduced incarceration rates, and they've reduced their crime rates. Texas, for example, has closed eight prisons, saved over $4 billion in taxpayer money, and it's also got the lowest crime rate right now than it has since the mid-1960s. And so when you look at the criminal justice system, again, we look at it from the moral perspective, and we think it's a two-tiered system that's unjust, by and large, the way it's applied. Um, Then you look at it from the constitutional perspective, 40% of the Bill of Rights deals with the criminal justice system, the Fourth, Fifth, Sixth, and Eighth Amendments. It was a warning from the founders that the biggest threat to life, liberty, property, and the pursuit of happiness would come through the criminal justice system. And then you look at it from the fiscal perspective, and I like to say the fiscal case becomes the moral case. And that's what a lot, when, when state legislatures start to look at what they're spending every year on incarceration, and then they peel back to see who's in prison and why, 
and governors come in and see that, that's where we get the save. That's where the savings begin. They come for the savings, but what happens is they stay for the salvation because then they see, my goodness, there's so many stories of redemption here and how people can turn their lives around if we can give them another chance. How do you how do you approach this though from uh, from the the employers? Uh, perspective, they're they're looking for somebody. Person comes in and they've got the criminal record. Yeah. And all of a sudden, first thing I say is, "Oh, I'm sorry, you can't come here." How do you change that? Well, you know, at Coke, since I've been with the company, we've we've uh, hired people with criminal records. In 2015, we banned the box, meaning we took our, that box on the application that requires someone to check whether they have a criminal record or not. And we we did that. We think it's the right thing to do, but more importantly, we think it makes good business sense. Um, you know, each employer needs to make their own decision on it. We will never skimp on safety. We will always prioritize safety in our workplaces. We're not going to put anyone at risk. Okay. But what, the, what we've learned is over time is that it's a competitive advantage for us. Uh, in the country, in the United States, one in three people in this country have some type of criminal record. That's as many people with a criminal record uh, that have college degrees. And so from a business perspective, as we talked about earlier, we're a global employer around the world, hundreds of thousands of employees. It wouldn't make a lot of great business sense to us to say, well, one-third of the potential applicant pool, we're just going to forget about them. We're not even going to look at them because they checked the box. What we do is we want to know about that, but we want to know the whole person. That's one data point. And so you do your diligence. We are very... You know, our, we, we are very selective how we do things. We're very intentional in our, in our process for hiring people and recruiting people. Uh, it goes through many rounds. And so usually individuals who have a criminal record will bring it up on their own. Um, and by the time we do a conditional offer of employment, we're going to do a whole background check. So we're going to find out one way or another. And it's not like it's a, a showstopper for us, because like I said, we've been hiring people with criminal records as long as I've been with the company, but we want to know about it. And when someone tells us their story, tells us what happened, we get comfortable with it, you know, and, we, and we're comfortable with it, and they're the best person for the job, we'll hire them. We like to say we're going to hire the best person, period. Not the best person with a cr criminal record or without a criminal record. It's just one data point. And if you look at our society where we've got at the federal level anywhere between 5,000, 6,000 federal criminal laws, 300,000 federal criminal regulations, the states have all kinds of laws, it's not that hard, unfortunately, to get tripped up in the criminal justice system. And some things are more serious than others, but we have, we have over-criminalized a lot of behavior. So from our perspective, we want to know about the whole employee, any one of us, quite frankly, um, all of us there before the grace of God go, I, at least I know that, um, that we could all get tripped up by the system. You know, I grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts, as I mentioned. The first, my best job ever before I went to law school and before I got with Coke, I was a prison guard for a couple of years. And there were a lot of kids I grew up with who were in prison. Yeah. This was when I was in college to pay for college. And so I did some really dumb things when I was young, you know, nothing that major, but the types of things that can get you tripped up, you'd be amazed by. And then once you get a criminal record and you don't have resources, you don't have support, I had a lot of family support, um, and I got support in a lot of ways, encouragement, and then when I did the wrong thing, I got my butt whooped, and mm -hmm. I needed it. Now, sometimes in my neighborhood, there were kids that didn't get that, and they ended up in prison. So from our perspective, you know, we want to make it so individuals have a second chance. We think it's good for society. It's really one of these things. It's a win-win-win proposition. Good for the individual gets a job. Good for the company. Gets a good employee. 
and good for society, someone who's not going to go back to prison, not hurt anyone else, and become a taxpayer. You're listening to Issues 2019 on the Intercom radio stations. Our guest is Coke Industries Senior Vice President Mark Holden, and we're talking about the criminal justice system and reform, and you've answered every question I had written out, Mark. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about uh, what kind of response you've gotten from uh, uh, government and uh, business. Uh, tell us a little bit about the, the first step in, in uh, prison reform and that summit at the White House you went to. Yeah, now that was really exciting. So. You know, I kind of take a step back. It, after the 2016 election, we, we were working with different coalitions. We've worked in bipartisan coalitions with the groups on the left and right, ACLU, Center for American Progress, Cut 50, um, a lot of different groups, left and right, center, over the last 10, 15 years on criminal justice reform. But in 2016, we were ready. Whoever was going to be elected president, we wanted to go in and say, let's reform the federal system. The states, like I mentioned earlier, had reform, have been reforming their systems more and more for the last 10 to 15 years. Federal system, we haven't done so much. And so we were excited to do that. President Trump was elected. And, you know, a lot of my friends on the left and the right were kind of like, well, nothing's going to happen now because President Trump ran on this, you know, tough on crime um, platform when he was running for office. And so I was having discussions with a couple of people, and I said, we're still going to go in and try to meet. And they were kind of like, well, I don't think so. It's not, it's not worth it. And they asked me what we were going to do. I said, well, we're going to keep working on these issues because it's a big issue, and we think we can get something done. And I said, just, you know, my, my point of view was don't forget that Jared Kushner's father went to prison. He was incarcerated. And I just know the impact when I worked in a prison, seeing kids I grew up with in prison, that stuck with me. Anybody who's been touched by the system, anyone who gets proximate to it, as Brian Stevenson would say, they want to try to change it usually. And so that was one thing. The next thing, a couple days after that, I got a call from Chairman Grassley's office, and he wanted to... He wanted to know if you know our company was still interested in criminal justice reform, if Charles was interested in it. And I said, absolutely, sir. He said, okay, we'll be in touch. And then three to four months later, um, Jared Kushner was up on the Hill meeting with Grassley and Durbin and Mike Lee, et cetera. And it wasn't too much long after that, we got invited to the White House. I got invited to the White House to meet with Jared Kushner and his team about criminal justice reform and what happened last time, what can we do now, all that type of thing. And you know, long story short, we started out looking just at prison reform, not just like it's not enough, but that one issue, because everybody, there's a lot of unanimity about it. You know, 95% of the people in the criminal justice system are coming out at some point, and, you know, one way or another. Yeah. And yeah. so it's in all our interest that they come out better than they went in. And so the whole idea of having education programs inside of prison, um, skills programs so people learn a trade, and when they come out, they can get a job getting therapy, getting treatment for whatever, you know, cognitive issues you might have, making them better, not bitter. So when they come out, they don't go back to prison. Everybody seemed to be agreement, agreeing on that. Uh, we had a meeting with the president last January of uh, 2018 where we talked about it, and there was someone in this, the room, a guy named Reed Cordish, who worked with Jared Kushner's team, and he made a point. At one, we were going through all the statistics and the data, and Reed said, Mr. President, to the president, he said, you need to understand that the people who are in our prisons are the people you ran for. You know, they're the voiceless people. You can give them a voice. And the president really it really clicked did, on him that this did was that a, what it got his attention. That though. got his attention, yeah. and he realized this is a rigged system. People pay their debt to society, they do all the right things, and then we don't let them get a job. Mm -hmm. And then they end up back in prison, and they get worse over time. So he was really on board with that. And then after that, what happened was... Um, the president learned about the case of Alice Johnson. 
don't know if you're familiar with Alice Johnson. Sure. Yeah. Low-level nonviolent drug offender. He commuted her sentence. She was uh, someone who had fallen on bad times. She had made some bad decisions, sending um, coded messages to a couple of drug dealers. She, her, her son had died, got killed in an accident. Her husband left her, lost her job. Still, she made a mistake, et cetera. Yeah. So long story short, she was arrested. They, they offered her a three- to five-year plea bargain. She turned it down. She went to prison and got life plus 25 years. Um, the president heard about her case through Kim Kardashian, and Kim Kardashian went and advocated for Alice. The president commuted her sentence, and after that we got sentencing reform because the president understood. He, like a lot of people, thought that someone who gets a life sentence is someone like the Marathon Bomber, or the Unabomber, but that isn't how it works in our society. So that led to the sentencing reform issues, um, four common sense f- sentencing reforms, huge, huge margins in both the House and the Senate. You know, 87 to 12 in the Senate for a criminal justice issue, which is usually a tough issue. Um, it's basically, you don't see post office named voted 87 to 12 anymore, but that was si- signed into law December 21st. At, I was at the Oval Office that day. When I was there, it was, it was an amazing event. There were about six or seven people who were formerly incarcerated there who were given testimonials. It was like being in church. And I thought back to that first meeting where the individual said, Mr. President, you can give them a voice, and he did. And so that's a big deal. You have, of course, you're, you're a terrific lawyer. You've made uh, some wonderful arguments and, and some great statistics and great facts. But at the end of the day, you know you're going to run into so many people who say, why should I care about these people? They're the deadbeats. They're the people who, who, who I don't care about, right? You yeah. You can see that. No, I've, I've heard it. I think that it's one of these things going back to if you haven't, if you don't know someone who's been touched by the system, you'd think that. But once you go to a prison or you know someone who's been in prison or you meet someone who was in prison and you see them and you hear their story, that's when minds change. There are some people who, you know, aren't redeemable probably, but most are, and there are so many great stories of redemption uh, in our criminal justice system. So at the end of the day, whether people know it or not, this affects everybody. It affects all of us. It affects our society. Um, you know, the, the, the economic toll on it, like I mentioned earlier, the amount of money we spend and with some of the uh, bad outcomes we get from recidivism rates, we need to reform the system so it's safer and we need to keep, you know, people who need to be in prison, keep them away. But there are a lot of people who don't need to be in prison at all or don't need to be there that long. We need to be able to start to differentiate. And individuals need to care about this because, it, like I said, if you're a taxpayer, um, you live in a community, it impacts everybody. And at the end of the day, you know, one of the things I talk about is before any politician sh- should be allowed to pass a punitive, one more punitive criminal justice uh, um, law, they should go to a prison and talk to people who are in prison and they will not want to do that. I'm not, I'm not saying that this should be thug a, hug a thug or anything like that. That isn't it. But a lot of the people in prison, they have deep remorse, and they just want a second chance. The people I've met, at least, and I've been in a lot of prisons, fortunately or unfortunately, the last few years. You have uh, you've presented some terrific arguments, as I said, uh, very intellectual arguments, but I feel the passion. You've got it. It's coming from here, isn't it? Well, it's come from here, and it's again. It goes back to just if you've ever been around Charles Koch, he has the passion, and he, he you know he gets us all fired up on these and other issues, um, talking about the two tiered system that we live in in our society, and then it's beyond obviously just the criminal justice system. We have K through twelve education systems like that. We've got you know corporate cronyism, all those types of things where corporate welfare, uh, all the two tiered systems that the rich and connected, 
you know, get better outcomes than everybody else, and it's not a good thing for our society. We want to try to fix this as much as we can. Well, so thank you for spending some time with us. We're, we're out of time, and we, I, don't, I think we could do another couple, three hours on this thing because there is a lot to this. And you guys, thank you so much for the work you're doing because, it, 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 like you said, it's an impassioned thing that you're doing, but it, it's, it's something that uh, you've convinced me that the society needs to take a look at this, a real strong look at the criminal justice system and how we do things. Thanks so much for being with us. We appreciate your time this morning. Thanks so much for having me. Our guest is uh, Coke Industries Senior Vice President Mark Holden. That's all for this edition of Issues 2019. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening. I'm Steve McIntosh. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See t